Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Mike Dunleavy. Mike Dunleavy, a longtime player and coach in the NBA, and he is now the head coach at Tulane University in New Orleans. What an interesting cat this guy was. Really great chat. His career, you go back, you sort of, you remember, ah, oh, Dunleavy, was he on this team, this team? A little bit of a Zelig thing, a Forrest Gump thing going on. He just seemed to be kind of everywhere. He was the coach of the Lakers when Magic Johnson announced that he had HIV. He was the coach of the famous Trailblazers teams of the late 90s and early aughts. It's funny, I was talking to Dunleavy and I said, those teams, they, well, they had some character issues. I was trying to dance around and he goes, you mean the Jailblazers? I say, yes, yes, the Jailblazers. Because at that era, when the Blazers were a team full of... um Difficult personalities, they were known as the Jailblazers. So we talked about all that and his coaching trajectory and, oh man, working under Donald Sterling and what that was like. This is a guy who's just been around so long and coached some really interesting teams, some very good teams too, uh, that just the stories flowed. And uh, I enjoyed it. Never met the guy before and we sat down and I started looking at his uh, the artwork on his walls and I named a couple of obscure NBA players. He's like, all right, this guy's probably okay. And then off we went and uh, it was good. Really good chat. Enjoyed it a lot. Hey, we got a sponsor this week, and that is SeatGeek. Friends, you know I love SeatGeek. SeatGeek is a longtime sponsor of the Jonah Carey podcast going back to the Nezozoic era. That's not a real thing, but anyway. They're wonderful. It's the smartest, easiest, fastest way to get tickets to every type of live event you could possibly imagine. Games, concerts, what have you. I've used SeatGeek many times for concerts and hockey games and baseball games and all kinds of great stuff. It's great. They use technology so you get a color-coded map. Oh, well, the best ticket, the best bang for the buck, it's in this section, this section, maybe the upper deck. It might be here. It might be there. But they're always spot on. They really, really do a really good job of that. Very interactive, very easy to use. SeatGeek app is fantastic, too. Here's what you do an even better offer. Download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah today, that's J-O-N-A-H, but you should know that, and you'll get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Literally, that's it. That's all you got to do. You download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah, and you'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Thank you so much to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Welcome back. Always good to have you guys on board. Uh, programming notes, you will see some stuff coming up in the next uh, little bit from CBS Sports. Uh, in the podcast realm, we are going to proceed with that Top 100 Athlete Series that I've been talking about a little bit. I've got one in the can already, and we're working on some others, so that'll be fun. And uh, stay tuned for all that good stuff. And uh, writing should pick up as we go along here toward spring, and things start getting interesting. Man, it's this offseason is so weird in baseball. Where's Hosmer? Where's J.D. Martinez? Where's Darvish? Where's Arietta? These Scott Boris clients and then just various market forces holding things back. It's fascinating. I cannot ever remember anything like that, uh, except maybe in the collusion days of Dawson and Reigns and Jack Morris and Lance Parrish and those guys. Collusion has been cited, kind of murmured here and there. I don't believe that's the case this time. I think there are other factors. Uh, and I've written about it as well, but bottom line is it really is a slow off season, but it'll pick up and we'll get into some fun stuff. So, Check out all of that. Check out this edition of the Jonah Carey Podcast. It is with Mike Dunleavy. Enjoy. Jonah Carey is on the phone. Jonah, Jonah. Jonah Carey is on the phone. Hold on, we're listening to your intro. Recording. How are you, Coach Don Levy? I'm well. I, uh, looking around the, the stuff in your office, and I'm already mesmerized. I think, and the thing is, too, when you start looking at this stuff, like, okay, like, there's Jordan talking about guys, but now I want to identify each member of the, I'm going to guess, 91 Orlando Magic. Like, I know that's Scott Skiles. 
But then who would be 24 for the Magic? You know what I mean? Like, okay, that's Nick Anderson, but who's the, like, it's always the third guy or the fourth. Who's the guy in the background jockeying for position 33 for the Magic? These are the things that drive me crazy. These are the things that I want to know. Well, good. You can spend a lot of time here figuring it out because I'm not worried about it. <laughs> Some of them I know. I mean, uh, I'm just a, a, a Leroy Neiman fan and yeah. have uh, a lot of his basketball works and, um, um, yeah, some of them, some some of them are pertinent. Uh, you know, the, obviously, having coached Magic and played against Michael, and uh, you know, I, I guarded him in his second uh, pro game. Oh my God! And then, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously, Bird Magic. We, you know, we then Magic Kevin coached him, and then played against uh, ninety-one finals against Bulls and Lakers, and then the seventy-seven All Star game was in uh, in Milwaukee, and uh, Julius Serving. We were we were playing there. Uh, we played there the game after um, the All Star break, so was there for the for the game and good time there. So again, a lot of a lot of all, all this stuff is meaningful to me in you know different ways. Uh, I think we got to start by talking about the experience of guarding Jordan in the second game, and I'm just thinking size wise, like you're six three, six four kind of lanky-ish. What is your approach? I mean, what what was the scouting report on him? Because obviously he'd made a name for himself in college, but coming into the game, was it, oh, yeah, like this is going to be the worst night, or you were just like, Oh, no, well, first of all, I was never going to be the primary defender on Right, him. okay, so fair. we had a guy named Sidney Moncrief. Moncrief could defend. Who was the, you know, Arkansas. All, NBA defensive player sure. of the year. Um, and not in the, well, the, 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 in the second game, the, his first game, well, his, his second game, of his pro career, uh, was at home. We were playing in Milwaukee. I happened to be on the bench at this time, and um, he came down on a fast break. And I'm sitting next to, uh, I think I was sitting next to Kevin Greavy, as a matter of fact. Uh, he takes off from, you know, like toe jams the free throw line, okay, and takes off. And I say to Greavy, I said, Oh, that's his first mistake. <laughs> and, as he kept soaring and, and he dunked it, I was like, Whoa! Okay, <laughs> there may be a new sheriff in town here. Yeah, and then, um, but later that year, uh, we played them in Chicago, and um, I think we had a twenty-one point lead going into the fourth quarter, and um, they went to a, like a one-four flat where four guys on the baseline, and Jordan brought the ball up, and he just went totally just went one-on-one with Moncrief on him. Yeah, and then I was coming out of the corner to double-team him, and. Um, he only got, I think, I think he only, I think we held him to like 23 in that quarter and lost by two. Wow. So, uh, you know, 23 that, in the quarter. So that was kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the eye opener of like how good this guy is. And one of your early exposures in, as a player was to Julie Serving as well. And, you know, it's interesting. I guess Jordan got some comps to Irving just because they were both high flyers or whatever. Irving was a little bit bigger in stature and stronger and all that. For people who are a little younger who didn't get it, because I think that even younger fans, like if you came up with LeBron or whatever, you're aware of Jordan. But I feel like Irving is the guy that it's like, unless you had experienced him, maybe you weren't familiar. And also, by the time the Sixers make it to the finals the second time, I feel like that's when he was almost at the the second half of his career. But early Irving, how good was he and how different was he from other players in your experience? Well, he was different. First of all, our experience, we traded for Julius the night before our opening game. Yeah. And so uh came in for shoot-around that next morning, and uh, after shoot-around, the trainer says to me, he goes, hey, Mike, um, uh, what leg did you hurt in training camp? And it was Al Domenico was the trainer. I said, oh, well, I don't even remember. He goes, oh, that's right, we'll figure it out. Um, he said, hey, um, uh, Gene wants to see you, Gene Shu, the Gene head Shue, coach. Yeah. So you know, I go into Gene's office. And he says, Mike, sit down. He goes, look, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Which do one do you want first? I said, I want the good news. <laughs> he says, well, we really like you. And I, I, was, I was on a non-guaranteed contract. We really like you as a player, and um, we're going to guarantee your money for the rest of the year. I'm like, great, what's the bad news? Bad news, you're the only guy without guaranteed money, and uh, we got Julius serving in here last night, and... I need to put you on the injured list. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm good with it. I got, you know, I got guaranteed money, sure. now, so I feel good about it. And, and then um, it took about a month before we made a trade. We traded Freddie Carter to Milwaukee, mm-hmm. where I came off the injured list and had a chance to, you know, to kind of start start playing. But 
uh, Doc as a you know as a player, uh, the first big differential you knew with him is you know size of hands. Yeah. I mean, basically on normal people, if you take your hand and then go down about a joint on your other hand and, and attach it, you know that's how big his hands were. I mean, he could virtually hold a basketball kind of like you'd hold a, a cantaloupe. Wow. You know? So so you know the ability to just control the ball, wave the ball, you know, front and with strength um, was, you know, the biggest thing, you know, that, that he really had, I think, going for him as well as being very long and, and he could jump. But I, I just think the size of his hands uh, was the, the major part of it. And, you know, as a, an offensive player, he wasn't a great skill player as far as, you know, range on a shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, he, and he had kind of a slow release. Um, but he did have a, a really good medium-range bank shot and he could make a shot and it was – it was good enough to keep you honest to where you had to play him, and that first step he had um, that was that was pretty much lights out. Once he got by you there, you know he, he was this condor sweeping in and um, able to finish. You played also uh, coming into the pros. You played under Frank McGuire, and it's always interesting talking to players who become coaches and looking back after the fact and, and who were their early influences. Uh, and you played for so many coaches, and you had experienced so many coaches, and you've been with so many assistants. But I have to imagine that when you became a coach, I would think there would, might be some McGuire lessons that would be transferred forward well, at some point. The, 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 the biggest one, I think, was um, I'm a freshman, and my year was the first year freshman could play varsity. Yeah. And, um, and I started uh, with, a, uh, with Kevin Joyce, who's uh, a Malloy High School guy from New York, um, you know, 72 Olympic team, first team All-American. And, uh, and our, our, our front line was, uh, Brian Winners, another Malloy High School guy who, 6'5", forward, really shot the lights out, NBA All-Star. Mm-hmm. And then Alex English. Oh my God. Uh, you know, was a freshman with me. Yeah. Who was a Hall of Famer, obviously, yeah. you know, scored, I think he had eight straight years of 2,000 or more points. Um, and then we had a seven footer named Danny Trailer. Um, so we, we had a really good team. And, mm-hmm. um, one day I'm out there, you know, pre, right before the game starts, I'm out there working on my pre-game routine. Mm-hmm. And uh, Coach McGuire calls me over and, um, and you know, stops my routine to call me over. So I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be something special, you know. And so um, he, says, he says, Mike, feel this. And he puts out his sport coat. And he's got a good-looking sport coat on. And I, I, I touched, he goes, 100% cashmere. And I'm from Brooklyn. I'm like, what the hell is cashmere? <laughs> it's like, it's really soft, coach. It's great, you know. So, I mean, he was a, he was, he was like Frank Sinatra Jr. in terms of, you know, he's a, you know, top, he would be a top dress guy. And yeah. Like, I mean, he wore alligator shoes with rubber soles to practice. Oh, that's um, you know, uh, uh, pinky diamond ring that was his his, his, his wife who passed away. Yeah, was, you know sentimental value. But I mean, he was dressed to the nines every single day. You know, mm-hmm. as far as uh, from a coaching standpoint, um, so very fashion forward. Um, really, uh, from a basketball standpoint, but he, he was very consistent. He liked playing a two-three zone and was very conservative in how he played. Mm-hmm. But he didn't take over the team when we started October fifteenth. He came in. You know, closer to November the 15th. And during that other period of time, though, Donnie Walsh and another guy named Ben Job, mm-hmm. they were the real teachers. And, you know, they taught me everything I needed to know to get to the next level. Like mm. when I went to, when I was in training camp with the Sixers, there wasn't anything there that I didn't know how to, you know, fundamentally how to do. Mm. And I think that's what, you know, really helped me make that team was that, you know, from a conditioning standpoint, fast break, you know, I mean, all the reads and situations. Uh, so um, the the total coaching staff taught me a great deal. I would say the X's and O's, the biggest part of it was um, from Donnie and from Ben. Uh, but the coach and the recruiting part of it, that's that's where he was special in terms of in-home visits and, you know, uh, you know, coach, people would say, oh, he's a player's coach type. You know, I mean, he was – he. Uh, Great personality, yeah. great storyteller. Um, I mean, for four years, I heard I heard stories about you know Will Chamberlain for four years. I mean, he coached Will Chamberlain. Well, first of all, well, two things. Heard about Lenny, Lenny Rosenbluth, who was um, his star player, six seven forward, 
uh, star player on that 57 national championship team at North Carolina mm-hmm. that beat Wilt at Kansas in triple overtime. Wow. Uh, and then I would hear Wilt stories because he coached Wilt in 1960 when he was with the Philadelphia Warriors, mm-hmm. the year Wilt averaged 50 points a game and had his 100-point game that. in Hershey. In Hershey. Yeah. So I heard all these stories every single day. And, you know, and I, we just played North Carolina, North Carolina this year. And um, I ran into some old guys, and I said, hey, I just want to see Le- – all I want to see is Lenny Rosenbluth. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> he, he coached – it's like he's the greatest shooter you ever see, you know, I ever seen, basically. So that one, and then my contributing story, Coach McGuire story, uh, with Will Chamberlain was um, – I was in the NBA, and it probably had to be – now it's probably 1983, and I think I'm playing up at Cutcher's in the Maurice Stokes charity game. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you know, they had this game every single year, and um, guys came in from all over. And uh, I was tying my shoelaces, and I, this, this kind of big shadow comes over me. And uh, I look up, and it's Will Chamberlain. <laughs> and, and Will says, hey, they told me I should come talk to you. I said, really? Come talk to me about what? He goes, they say you're the best shooter in the room. And I led the NBA in three-point shooting. Yeah, yeah. And I said, um, okay. He says, look. Here's my phone number. When you come to L.A. this year, I want you to call me, and I want to shoot you three-pointers for money. Will. And I said, I said, I said, Mr. Chamberlain, I have so much great respect for you uh, because Coach McGuire, you know, was my coach in college, and, you know, I heard about you virtually, you know, almost every single day. I mean, different kind of different stories about games and lifestyle and all these different things. And I said, you know, I don't make a whole lot of money, but when I come to L.A., I'm bringing it all. <laughs> so we, we – and I came to L.A., of course, to coach the Lakers, and yeah. I um, uh, spent a lot of time with Will. We never shot, but uh, got to be friends. He was a big tennis guy. I was a big tennis guy as cool. well. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of years uh, we'd end up at uh, in Flushing Meadow in New York for the, for the U.S. Open and, um, you know, kind of pal around a little bit, but um, – so th- those were kind of my combination, Will Chamberlain and, and Coach McGuire stories. Um, I love it. I want to talk about that uh, those Lakers teams, too, because, again, this feels like a bygone era, depending on your age, but you were the coach of the Lakers when Magic announced that he had HIV. And I can remember at the time, you know, we were not as evolved then as we are now. And I can remember Carl Malone having reticence about, I don't know if I want to get on the court. And we, just, we didn't know. We didn't have that education. This seemed like this thing that happened to other people. Now it's, oh, it's Magic Johnson. It's the guy that everybody knows. What was that locker room like at the time? You know, you are the guy. You're, you know, you're there. You're a leader. And, and you're, guiding, you're guiding this very talented team, this really good team that ends up winning uh, yeah. just the finals and so forth. Well, we, we had the, the, the year previous um that was lakers bulls that was lakers bulls yeah. and um we went out and got sedale three and we thought we had a real i mean first of all you know the year before we felt like we could beat them we won game one in chicago yeah. game two james worthy got hurt never to return mm-hmm. and he was our guy to guard jordan he was also our press breaker so made it you know tough going after after we lost him right but had him back healthy got sedale three who we thought could really help us as mm-hmm. a backup point guard shooting guard uh thought our team you know, again, second second year together that we'd be even that much better. And then uh, we came back from uh, winning the McDonald's Open in Paris, and we were we, we had a kind of a bad road trip for uh, for preseason. Yeah, we played um, uh, played. We were going to Utah, then Vancouver, back to back games. Vancouver. And um, uh, we get to the hotel. I get to the hotel room in Utah, and I get a call from Mitch Kupchak, assistant general manager mm-hmm. at the time. He says, Mike, uh, I gotta let you know, Irvin's gotta, he's coming back to LA. He's not feeling, not feeling great. And, um, I said, Mitch, he didn't have to get on the plane from LA to, to Utah. I mean, if he, it, long, I get Paris long trip, bad road trip. I would have just left him at home. If he needed some rest, nobody did. He goes, he goes, nah, it's not really about that. Matter of fact, he says, I'm scared to death. Wow. And that's all he said to me. And the minute, the minute he said that to me, I don't even know why, but I just thought, cancer or AIDS. Wow. And, um, and uh, and then he he went back, and then it was probably that next week. Um, Lon Rosen, his agent at the yeah. time, uh, 
came by my house at, you know, kind of late at night. And he said, Mike, look, Irvin, you know, you want me to sit down and talk to you and tell you kind of what's going on. Uh, you know, you need to know this for planning, etc." And he says, look, he's HIV positive and he's not going to play and it's devastating and, you know, all the above. And, you know, and then so, you know, when I go in and obviously I, Jerry, I talked to Jerry West and, you know, kind of what's going on. They're trying to figure out everything and how they're going to bring it back. And they kept saying he had a cold. The cold lasted like 10 days. You know, it was like yeah. people started, you know, like, you know, like what's, what's you know, kind of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And we were, we had practice at Loyal Mar- Marymount uh, one day. I get a call. In the middle of practice, uh, actually, uh, John Black, our PR guy, brings me a phone. It was Jerry. He says, Mike, uh, this thing's getting ready to break. Uh, just stop practice. Tell, tell the guys to come down to forum. So um, we do that. We go down there, and I think there was some speculation on the radio. By the time we get to the locker rooms, so the guys were all trying to, you know, like, I mean, I, and I didn't, I knew, but I didn't tell them because yeah. I wanted, you know, Irvin to be the one that would tell them. Yeah. Um, and so we got in our locker room, and he proceeds to tell the guys, and it was a very emotional locker room. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen was how emotional that locker room was, and he literally went from there and walked upstairs to that press conference mm-hmm. that was so composed and amazing, you know, how he said he was going to beat this and how it was going to turn it into a positive. Uh, you know, so, again, just a really amazing, um, amazing day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, guys like Worthy had been with him for so long at that point, too. Um I also want to talk about some of those Blazers teams from the late 90s because it's such an interesting juxtaposition. You win Coach of the Year in 99, some good teams, but they had a reputation. You know, they were called some not flattering things. And there yeah, were some guys. Took them over, they called the Jailblazers. The Jailblazers. Okay, so we could be candid. That's good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, guys like Ruben Patterson, some, some real, like. Well, I never coached. Oh, not Patterson. I never coached. I never, is, coached uh, I, never co- I never coached Ruben, Ruben Patterson. Yeah. Um, Look, we, we had a we had a cast of characters. Yeah. Uh, Rashid Wallace, yeah. you know, was the, the king of the tee. I mean, he set yeah. the world record for technical fouls. I think it was forty one in a season, and um, you know, <laughs> I kind of went to management uh, on it and basically said, "Look, um, you know, I get it. He's an emotional player. He um, feeds off of that, and I don't have a problem with it as long as it's only one." Yeah. You know, when you get to two. You know, um, then you're now you're really hurting our team. Um, and then the other part is, is like, you know, when I'm out there trying to bring him in, you know, like when I when I give you the sign, like, okay, that's it. You know, like it's got to be it. Yeah. And if not, you know, we need to suspend them. We need to cut this, you know, in the bud right here. Right. You know, nip it at the in the bud. And so um, they wouldn't do it. Um, and then, if, you know, I'll, obviously, then the NBA took took it over and said that after 16 you're going to get right. you know, it's going to happen because what happened is that like I'd be holding Rashid back and pushing him but you know at 62 at, at I mean he's looking over my head he, he he's still MF and referees and like okay no like that's not working like yeah. I, I'm not a big enough deterrent right here and he's and he's getting tossed out of some games so um you know uh but having said that I mean Rashid Wallace one of my favorite players ever people to coach. really love the guy Rashid really uh, love the Rashid guy. was um uh, an incredible teammate. Uh, you know, he played. He had a great game. He defended. You know, he could. You know, he, he could score. He could defend. He played hard. Mm-hmm. Teammates loved him. Great teammate. Uh, Funny. Yeah, he just, yeah, just went berserk sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, actually, one of the funny stories about Rashid, you know, like I come into a um, a huddle, you know, to late game situation and. I'm going to run this play for Rashid. And he says, coach, coach, no, don't run the play for me. Run, you know, run the play for somebody else. And at first I'm like taken back, like, wow. I mean, you don't want the ball at the end of a game. And, you know, his whole thing was he never wanted publicity. He wanted to be a part of the guys, but Hmm. like he wanted somebody else to get that kind of spotlight and that kind of, um, um, credit. Um, so I said, okay, okay. All right. No problem. All right. So, um, we're going to run this play, and Scotty, you're going to come off the screen by um, Rashid, and mm-hmm. then Damon, you know, you're going to hit Scotty. Scotty, you should, should be wide open, about 17 foot. Let's drain this thing. Let's go home. Okay? We broke the huddle, um, and I went out there, and uh, I told, I grabbed Scotty, and I grabbed uh, Damon, and I said, Look, if either two of you guys shoot this ball, I will freaking suspend your asses. <laughs> okay? I said, Pip, when, when Damon hits you with this pass, 
drop it into Rashid. Yeah. Okay. So the play was for for Scotty, yeah. but throws it down into Rashid. Turns right shoulder bank shot game winner. You know, and it was like as long as the play wasn't for him, it could end up in his hands, and he wasn't afraid, and he could deliver for you. So it was just you know understanding personnel dynamics, personality of the player, and and dealing with it accordingly. Well, and it sounds like too, you know, those teams being somewhat volatile in personality. I mean, how does one? How do you prepare for that kind of thing? Like you have a lot of talent. That's a lot of good players on one team. How do you make it all mesh? It's just like okay, well, they could be however they yeah, want. Yeah, well, well, one of the things yeah. too is a lot of talent, especially ninety nine. First, first thing that um, when I went in with Bob Witsit, we talked about it. I said, you know, okay, a lot of talent, a lot of athletic players on this team. Uh, but you guys have never been out of the first round of playoffs yeah. in the last, last five years. And I said, I said, because, you know, my philosophy is like you win with character. Mm-hmm. I said, 82 games is a really long season. You got a lot of ups and downs in this time. And, you know, guys that are front running when things are up ahead, they're great. But, you know, you, you, you hit one of those, hit one of those valleys and all of a sudden you could disintegrate. And so, um, I said, and I, I've been a general manager as well, coaching general manager with the Bucks. I said, I get your plight. I said, so here's let, let's let's make a deal. Like, I will get these guys' stats. Okay, just don't fall. Let's, let's trade them though. Let, don't don't fall back in love. Let's just make sure we move them. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, we did that. Uh, you know, got guys' stats and we made some trades and got guys in that you know were better that you know adept at being <coughs> team guys and winners, and um, and that's how we got to the to the conference finals. And mm. That's how we um, you know. You know, virtually up until like the last half of my last season there, I think I had the all-time winningest percentage of any Portland percentage of any other coach in Portland history. Which is pretty good because the 77 team, as I recall, was pretty decent. Yeah. So So, um, anyway, we we made some of those, you know, some of those um, things happen. Uh, That team in 99, they lost in the finals of the West. Um, You know, again, People ask me about that game. We were down three to one. Came back, forced a game seven yeah. in LA, and you know we had a fourteen point lead going into that fourth quarter. People ask me all the time. They talk about that game, and I said, they said, oh god, it got to be so such a tough game. I said, actually, I've enjoyed watching that game. I didn't like the outcome of it, but uh, I, our guys played great in this game. And they said, but what are you talking about? The, the, those guys choked. I said. Well, it really depends on your, your definition of choke. Okay, so to me, a team that chokes potentially is a team that they gets rattled, mm-hmm. they turn the ball over, they they miss free throws, you know, in the clutch. You know, what I mean, that kind of situation. I could see you putting that moniker on them. I said, but if you look at our team uh, in that fourth quarter, okay, we had one turnover. Uh, we had one one missed defensive assignment on a rotation. Yep. Uh, and uh, we missed. We went through a stretch. We missed 13 straight shots, and 11 of them were great shots. Yeah. And two yeah, of them, yeah. and two of them were just good. Yeah. So, like, I don't, I don't see it. And the only place that, from a coaching standpoint, for me, um, I had a decision to make. At the end of that, um, at the end of that uh, third quarter, Rasheed was having a really good game. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm debating, okay, do I leave him in here and, and try to roll with it, or do I give him his normal rest, okay? And I opted to give him his normal rest. And um, put him back in the game, we still had a double-digit lead. Yep. So um, he, during that stretch, okay, uh, Rashid, I think, had 28 or 30 points in the game, and Steve Smith had 28 or 30 points in that game. Of those 13 shots that were missed, each of them had four each. Hmm. They just didn't go down. Didn't go down. Yeah. But, but for me, if Rashid, if I didn't give Rashid the rest and he had missed those four shots, I would have blamed right. myself saying, you didn't give him the rest. And, you know, that was a big mistake. You know, you, and that's what that cost it. So for my own well-being, the fact that we did it, got him back in with a double-digit lead. Otherwise, you know, I would have doubted everything, you know, for, to this day, you know, based on that it was the one, Real decision I had to make, and I felt comfortable with the decision. And it turned out we we got we got through that stretch. And um, then we had we had, you know we had one play. We we're down four with 32 seconds left to go in that game. Steve Smith goes right down the middle and gets planted by Shaq right right in the middle of the free throw line. No call. Yeah. After the fact, every referee in the world says, "Oh my God, total foul." 
and Steve was a 90% free throw shooter. Yeah. You know, so we would have been down two with 32 seconds, had a chance to get the ball yeah, back, yeah. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other interesting thing about that team in that year was, so we played the Lakers 11 times, you know, regular season, four times, seven times in, in the playoffs. If you had up all the points of all those games, the Lakers beat us by one. Wow. But if you looked at the plus minus of the games, when Sabonis was on the floor against them, we killed them. Wow. Or, or, we, or we beat them. I can't say we probably never killed them anyway, but, but we beat them. And it was funny, like, again, in that last game, unfortunately for us, Sabonis has four fouls with six minutes left to go in the game, and is fouled out with four minutes left to go in the game. <laughs> you know, and, and any game where you're dealing with a guy with the physicality yeah. of the, how the game goes between, you know, I mean, he and Shaq, I mean, um, but again, I, I look at it as a, it was, it, game seven was a, it was a great game, and I thought our guys played a great game. I do, I do a couple more, but I want to briefly get to Sabonis because you look around, it's like, okay, Bird, Magic, Jordan, West, like these are the jerseys. And then you look at the Sabonis jersey, and I feel like he's been lost to the sands of time a little bit. Some of his best years were spent playing internationally. By the time he came over to the States, he'd had some miles on the odometer. But I live in Denver, and I just did a podcast with um, Tim Connolly, who's the team president of the Nuggets, yeah. and we talked about Jokic. And that is the easy comp, that Jokic is this guy who's this transcendent passer whose vert is two inches, but he's this dominant NBA player at a time when everybody else seems to have this unbelievable athleticism. And Sabonis was just an alien. I, I, I cannot – Jokic is as close as it gets, but even then that's not the right comp. What was he like in his heyday? What was Sabonis like so, when you were coaching him? you know, when, when I was coaching him, yeah. you know, he, he was a rock. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, fundamentals, uh, great fundamental player. Um, the, the best way I could describe him or, you know, in terms of, you know, when I looked at him, I knew that every night that he had a matchup in his favor that he would destroy that guy. Mm. So, like, you know, when he had that matchup, just just, just, just feed him the ball, feed him the ball, he's going to come through for you, okay? Uh, the nights you had to play against Shaq, David Robinson, Tim Duncan, you know, you know, whoever those guys were, you know, in the league, you know, you probably had a, you know, you had a 50-50 chance, you know, depending. That's pretty good. You know? Um, but um, the difference was when, you know, when I had him versus earlier in his career, look at the 1988 Olympics. Yeah. Russian, you know, when he's playing with for Russia. Uh, his mobility and ability to shoot the three-pointer, you know, night and day. We got him. He was a mountain of a man. He was over 300 pounds, 7'3", yeah. great skill. But the, the one area, though, the funny thing about all the skill that he had, he was a great passer. People think of him as this great passer. You know, I mean, he's in the low post. He's throwing behind the back passes. He's throwing over the head, no look passes. But the crazy part about it, the guy could not throw a lob pass. Okay? <laughs> really? And and the, the reason he couldn't throw a lob pass, you best – uh, a lot of people would have that uh, visual of him, you know, feeding a low post. Something he would throw like that bowling ball, wrap around mm -hmm, pass, mm -hmm. would spin on it. Mm -hmm. Every other pass in the world, but in Europe, you know, they were never allowed to. Ha they they couldn't ha make that play. You couldn't throw a lob for a dunk. Oh, really? The whole time he was growing up. Interesting. That was it. Was it was a European rule? You, that was an illegal play. Wow. So, so he never had that. So I was trying to tell him, I said, well, okay, do me a favor. So, so just shoot your three. Instead of making it, shoot it to the right. You know, it's like, same place. Shoot it to the right, two feet. You'll be good. Yeah. Right? But he just had this hard time with, you know, with, with that pass. Wow. Lack of reps. That's interesting. Uh, a couple more. I want to ask you, obviously, coaching so many, under so many different regimes, different owners. And Donald Sterling was uh, one of your bosses, and, and obviously uh, what came to pass with Sterling was after you ended up leaving the Clippers, you know, in the day-to-day, -day, you're coaching a team, you're doing what you got to do. Hey, Blake, okay, you're a young guy in the NBA, let's do this, let's work on this. Did it feel intrusive to have somebody like Sterling as the owner? Did you feel like, ah, you know, I want to do my job and I'm being held back by this guy? Yeah, the, th the difference was throughout the whole deal, yeah. I mean, like when I went in there, I think I got the job because I convinced him my selling point was that I could make him a lot more money than he's made being with that he was making. Accurate. That turned out to be very you true. Know, yeah. And so and, and he was like, Really? Well how? I said, Well, first of all, your market has already been made. You've got the Lakers. 
you have uh, your courtside seats are selling for four hundred. There's a selling for nineteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Your TV deal is eleven million. There's is eighty eight million. I could drive the Queen Mary through that spread. I said, I promise you, if you will give me fifty million dollars in salary cap money, which at the time they might have been like thirty six or thirty seven. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you'll go to fifty, okay, and build me a new practice facility, I promise you that I will get you players, and that you know that you'll make this back in spades. Okay, and so um, he he went with that. So um, and people like I, all the other coaches, Alvin Gentry, all the guys who yeah. passed said, yeah. "You fell for that? <laughs> you fell for that? Like you really think he's going to do that?" Yeah, and you know um, he did. Yeah, you know, but, but I mean, through a lot of work. I mean, like I had to go find him the land. Like, we got very fortunate finding the land for the practice. Facility. He told everybody the practice facility cost fifty million dollars. You know, we got a, I mean, uh, a fan who was building a big project, um, had a, a slither of land that he couldn't do anything with for zoning, and it was a perfect for us, fit for us, versus on the size and the amount of parking spaces you could have with on it. Centinella. Gave us, yeah, gave yeah. us, gave us the land for like two million bucks. Oh, wow. Like major steal. Yeah. Initially, all the land was going to be like, every other place was like ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, great, gave us for like two, two to two and a half million dollars. Then, anyway. All, all in, it was like, you know, 15 to 20 million, but it was a state of the art, great practice facility. Mm-hmm. Except for the one point, you know, we, we started out with him, and, and, and I'll go on record saying, like, you know, I always thought he was like delusional, okay? So we started out and said, look, uh, Mr. Sterling, we're building this practice facility. Would you like an office over here? Why would I want an office over there? I would never be over there. Okay, great. So, um, you know, we build it accordingly. It was a combination of the practice facility I had with the Portland Trailblazers and the new state-of-the-art stuff mm-hmm. going around. And then, I don't know what happens over the summer. He goes on a trip. He goes to Chicago and sees the Bulls practice facility, whatever. And, you know, and, and he's this guy who doesn't want to spend money on anything. And, uh, money on anything. So, um, all of a sudden, he comes in one day and everything is virtually done. And so, he walks into... I'm on the road. He walks into my office, and he, he says, and, it's, and it was an office similar t- to this. Yeah. You know, overlooks the court, mm-hmm. and, uh, the video, everything. I could, I could write down to the, to the video room. I could pull up anything I want to pull up. And so he goes, whose office is this? <laughs> they said, this is, this is coaches. He goes, you know what? It's too early to make that determination. <laughs> so I get a call on the road saying, coach, Mrs. Sterling just came in, and, you know, there's no plaque. I mean, he said, like, this office is going to be his office. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> so came back, and and they were like, nope, he just, he's the owner. He's taking it. Wow. And and um, and literally in the however many years I was there, I would tell you the amount of time. He, he never was there at any other time other than draft day when we did a draft room. Yeah. And I would tell you that over time, he couldn't have spent more than an hour in that office. Wow. I mean, it was just crazy. Then the next part about it was, I guess, at, at um, Chicago Bulls, they had a balcony mm-hmm. that overlooked the practice facility. Mm-hmm. He came in. He wanted a balcony. So you got to tear down this wall right here. So, so, so in order to make the balcony, it cost a million dollars to do the balcony. And what it did was, it, it, because how the balcony came out, it stopped you from being able to shoot three-pointers <laughs> on, t- on two practice courts. Two practice courts. Two practice courts. And <laughs> you're sitting there saying, like, what, what is driving you for this? The fact that you can say, I've got an office now with a balcony. You know, come, come visit. And, yeah. I mean, every, everything was him was, was always about this, you know, being bigger, better than the next guy yeah. type of thing. And I said, we said, like, Mr. Sterling, we, we, we had you from the very beginning on this. You know, hey, changed my mind. Yeah. Uh, but the bigger part of it was that, you know, he stopped you from doing so many deals. Mm-hmm. Um, because of money? Because of money. Yeah. And, 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 or, and, or, he, as general manager, didn't like the player. So much of what he did, right. he would look at a player physically. First of all, uh, people ask, was he a racist? Um, and I think it's, it's very possible he was a racist. Yeah. But not in the way they think. I never, ever heard him say anything about a black athlete. Okay. White athletes, another story. Interesting. Did not like white players at all. Wow. Okay. This, it doesn't matter what this guy's skill level nope. is or his cap hit or whatever. Nope. Yeah. Uh, I, so uh, 
one of the things, when I went in for my first interview, he said to me, um, he says, okay, who would you draft and who would you sign as a free agent? I said, um, well, I would draft, uh, you know, depending, but here's my order of the draft. And when it got to their pick, I said I would draft Chris Kamen. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, and then um, as far as free agency, I said I would go for Gilbert Arenas. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, that he said to me, he goes, he goes, he goes, Elgin, that's interesting. He said, he said, um, Al Davis said the same thing, and he said we should hire him as the coach. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, this, like, well, shit, sounds like Al Davis should be the general manager. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so anyway, that's what happened. And then when it came down to drafting Cayman, I mean, we drafted him, but he, you know, he said, you got, are you sure about this guy? You know, yeah, yeah. the whole thing. And I said, Mr. Sterling, I said, uh, I was out at the Chicago Combine, and I just was out there. Arn Tellum was representing him, asked me if I would go work this guy out. Mm-hmm. I said, and I could see how if you were in a workout, you may not understand how good he is, and Elgin may have seen him in a workout. I said, because when I asked him to do something, he, he just didn't follow directions that well. Hmm. And, I, and I was really frustrated with him. And I'm in a pair of Gucci shoes and a blazer or whatever because I'm going to the airport to go home. And so I take this stuff off. I go out in the court, and I, and I physically show him. I said, because I, I should have hooked up my left yeah. hand and right hand from like 15 feet. I visually show him things I want to see. He goes, yeah, I can do that. And proceeded to do everything I wanted oh, to do. Wow. Like he, he was more of a visual guy. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you got to learn about your players. How do you get through them? Some guys, you know, it's verbal. Some is physical. Some is you know visual. And sometimes it's a combination of all the above with different guys. But Cayman, I mean, could score left hand, right hand, could shoot a jump shot from 17 feet, could yeah. make free throws, could handle the ball. I mean, you know, virtually a Western Conference All Star for me. Yeah. So there were deals though, a lot of deals that got away from us that he didn't want to do. Uh, one deal in particular that we actually did do, he didn't want to do. Uh, you know, we, you know, drafted, I mean, during the time I was there, I drafted, you know, three all-stars from me. Chris Kamen, DeAndre Jordan, and, uh, I'll tell you two stories, and Blake Griffin. Yeah. Of course, Blake, I mean, I think Blake obviously was a pretty easy choice. Sure. But, but there were DeAndre, a lot of, DeAndre, we didn't know. But then a lot of number yeah. ones, I mean, turned out to be not easy choices. For sure. You know? Um, but, uh, we were trying to sign, um, uh, Catino Mobley sure. as a free agent. Rhode Island. And, um, you know, his agent was doing a good job of negotiating and, um, felt very comfortable with the four year deal. He wanted a five year deal mm-hmm. and said he was going to sign a five year deal with somebody else. And so I told Mr. Strolling I want to sign a five year deal with him. And, and basically he was like, well, he's not worth, you know, for five years. And I'm like, well, okay, he may be bluffing me. I get that. But, but to get into the playoffs for us, you know, we need to have this guy. We pay him one year too many. It wasn't, you know, matter. We, we, he, he'll get it. He can help us really get in right now. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Kim's time to make the deal. I can't find him. We're in Vegas for the summer league. You know, July first comes mm-hmm. and now comes time to sign. I can't get. I, I, he, he goes dead. He goes silent. Wow. Will not answer my phone. And he does. It. He, he would do this a number of times. Trade deadline stuff. He didn't want to do some deal on the table. He doesn't want to do. I'm calling to consummate the deal. He go he go dark on me. Wow. So I um. I get one of the other guys in our organization uh, who knows what room he's in and virtually threaten him. He says, Coach, he, he, he doesn't want to talk to you. He's not, he, he said not to give you his room number. I said, okay, but like right now, I'm just telling you right now, I will knock you out right here, okay? Physically, I, I, I am going to, like, I will really hit you. Wow. Unless you tell me his number. And the guy goes, all right, all right, I'll give, <laughs> I'll give you the number. Two, one, three. But don't, but don't tell him where you got the number. I said, my lips are sealed. Uh-huh. I go up to, I get to his room. He answers the door. He goes, Coach, I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk about this. I said, Mr. Sterling. I said, so then you lied. So you lied to me. You're a liar. He goes, what are you talking? I said, when I got here, you said you want to make the playoffs. Yes. You're willing to go all in to make the playoffs. And I'm telling you right now that this guy will get us to the playoffs. He's the piece that we need. He can, you know, he, he plays offense. He plays defense. He's going to fit in a great piece for us. It's a five-year deal. Maybe the fifth year is the wrong, you know, the, the wrong number. But years one, two, three for sure, and probably year four is probably good, and maybe five. I don't know, but but the first couple for sure. Yeah. He relented. He said, "All right, it's on you, coach. It's on you. This is your decision. This is going to come back to haunt you." I said, "Thank you very much. Done deal." Walked out the door. Called him. Cut the deal. Of course, we made the you know we made the playoffs with with uh, Catino. It was a great fit, mm-hmm. and. Ultimately, we traded Catino to the Knicks for Zach Randolph, mm-hmm. and then he was DQ'd by them 
you know, for his physical. Um, but to this day, Katino Motley is still playing. I mean, still at a high level for hmm. years and years after that. I mean, he was killing guys. Yeah. Cat was, a, I mean, just a, one of my favorite players ever. Cool. Yeah. It, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, what did the team sell for to Balmer those years later that you got the team pointing yeah, in the right direction? Well, he, he, he made his money. He got spanked and got thrown out of the league. They, they forced him to take $2 billion with him. Though. Yeah, it's reluctantly. You should have had a finder's fee. I uh, just got a couple more. I want to ask you about uh, being here at Tulane and about having this journey and being in the NBA for that long as a player and coach and then coming over here to build something at the college level. And, and at this point, uh, you know, working with kids who are much younger and you've got all this experience and there's all kinds of ways that you could go. What is your teaching style? How, how might it differ now versus the jazz say, hey, we got an opening, come over here and do it? There's, um, well, first of all, how, how I got here, um, you know, uh, I went through a two-year process where, well, going into with the Clippers, like I lasted longer there than virtually anybody else. For sure, there, like, Elgin was there for a while, but other well, than that, yeah, I'm talking about coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Eight years, and um, as he had done four of the times prior to me, he got got a wild hair up his ass and decided, I'm not going to pay you. He owed me like 13 million dollars. Yes, that's right. For a contract and um, and that I went thought, to court. and I thought I had it, uh, you know, pretty much locked in. Arbitration clause, loser pays legal fees, everything, and and um, I mean it was really shocking. I, I had just had dinner with them, uh, you know. Um, I mean they, they fired me as coach. Mm-hmm. We were dealing in a year. Well, first of all, the beginning of that year, they got fired. I think I have the best front line on the contract in the NBA. Um, Chris Kamen's my center. Mm-hmm. Zach Randolph's my power forward. Yep. I got Marcus Camby. And I draft Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan. You know, they, they basically it's a lot of beef. Pretty, pretty, pretty good front line. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, in, I guess it was October, right before training camp. We were in Vegas prior to that, and um, they tell me, Mister Sterling says, uh, "Okay, you need to cut 14 million dollars from your payroll." And I said, "Whoa, hold, time out, guys. I, I'm under budget. Yeah, like I, I'm within, you know, what, what I said." And he said, "We don't care." Economically, you know, the world then is ending out there and we need, you got two weeks. And I said, I said, Mr. Sterling, I said, look, these five guys are all liquid. Yeah. Minimum, I have 15 teams that would take every single one of these guys. Yeah. If you give me until January to bank wins, I will trade one of these guys by the trade deadline. And, um, so nope. You have two weeks, get rid of the money. So we wound up giving Zach Randolph away to Memphis so they can make the playoffs. Yeah. And we go preseason and we're still six and one, but that last game, Blake Griffin hurts his knee. Yeah. yeah. And he, he goes out. Supposed to get Blake Griffin back in February. And at that point in time, you know, we're, we're like a 500 team. Um, and we lose a tough game. Actually, we lose two games at Memphis. Uh, no Cayman hurts his back in warm ups. Uh, we played great. We got like a 12 or 13 point lead going into the fourth quarter, playing at a really high level. Fire alarms go off. The building gets empty. We go outside in the cold for 45 minutes, come back in, and Baron Davis and Marcus Camby can't play. And because of their backs, you know. Yeah, Baron had back problems. You know, yeah. they got, they got cold and they yeah. got stiff and couldn't play. We lose that game. Yeah. Then we go into Chicago the next night. And have a game that we wind up losing. Come back and the president of the team, Andy Rosa, says, all right, we're going to make a change. And um, I said, okay. And, you know, I want to stay on as general manager. Mm-hmm. And long story to there. But then I go into my general manager's mode as far as I, I hit the road. I go out. I go to North Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky, and go see all the top players because yeah, yeah. we're going to have a lottery pick. And have dinner with Mr. Sterling and said to him, I said, you know, um, all along we have draft pick stockpiled and we have money. And uh, target guys this summer are LeBron James, um, Chris Paul, uh, Dwight Howard. Yeah. And um, I said, you know, I think we, we're a perfect fit for LeBron James. Uh-huh. He, he's the perfect guy for us to get. But, there were rumors, but, yeah. but, but in order to do it, um, you know, I mean, we got to spend some money. You know, we got to fly privately and bring him in, go there, however we do it. And, you know, so the, whether we get him, we don't get him, you know, we have to, we're going to have to make an investment to trying to get him. I was supposed to fly. 
the day after to the ACC tournament. And um, uh, I was putting up a friend for membership at Bel Air Country Club. So I'm, I get there at 4.30 for a meeting. I'm not going to be there an hour. And um, uh, sitting around a table, introductions with the board, or, you know, membership committee. And you can't use a cell phone there. My cell phone is on fire, okay? I take a peek and I look down. as like one of my scouts. I'm like, okay, well, look, nothing here is important. The trading deadline's already over. Uh, you know, uh, not coaching, so it's not game plan. Can't trade. You know, if it's about the draft, you know, I'll be out of here in, in you know, another 30 minutes, so good to go. End the meeting. Virtually walk outside. My, again, my phone. And I, I, and I see all the phone calls I have. And I said, I said, this guy, Jerry. I said, Jerry, why are you calling me incessantly? And he goes, well, Mike, what happened? What happened? I said, what happened about what? He goes, well, you know, they said that you, you've severed ties with, ties with the Clipper, Clippers. I said, who said that? Well, Ralph and Mike, the TV crew. Yeah, yeah Ralph said, Waller, yeah. Well, I guess then it must be true. <laughs> Holy so, cow. So I look on my phone, and Andy Roser had called me about 20 minutes prior. And I call him back. You know, so it wasn't, it wasn't 45 minutes later. I said, Andy, what is going on? He said, sorry, I can't talk to you. Call the lawyers. They they announced they were firing me. They never talked to me first. Never Holy did, cow! Yeah, anything. I mean, never to this day, never talked to them once about about hey, we're firing you. Yeah. And um, then they tried to pull a you know big trick that that I quit and they weren't going to pay me yeah, all this yeah. BS stuff. Which of course, so I went to court. It takes me two years to to win the case. Yeah, we knew yeah. we were going to win. So that took me out of the out of the mix for two years. Then the third year, I was with a group trying to buy the Pelicans, and we had the deal for three hundred thirty eight million dollars. And an investment bank on a deal, like the last day or two, had us lower it to ten by ten million to three twenty eight because Benson was only at three hundred. And I'm like, I don't know how you guys do business, but risk reward. I'm telling you that this deal is worth six hundred. Okay, capital appreciation in the yeah. NBA, huge. You know, six hundred, three thirty eight, three thirty eight to three twenty eight. I mean, risk reward on the drop of ten million dollars doesn't make sense. Yeah. Anyway, lose the team. So that was three years. In the meantime, I was trying to. I was only interested in trying to get good NBA jobs, mm-hmm. and I didn't get them. I got into it, you know, with the Lakers, and um, you know, long stories, whatever. But I was in the mix there. Yeah. Thought I had a great chance to, to get them. I'd always had a good relationship with the organization. For sure. Didn't get it, and so there were, there were just bad jobs potentially. And I'm like, okay, so if I get a bad job, I get a four or five year deal. Yeah. Okay. If it doesn't work out, I'm in no man's land with my age. Yeah. Okay. So I could be done. So then I started thinking about it. I said, you know, in the meantime, I've been spending time up at Villanova with my son, Baker, who's the associate head coach, mm-hmm. and Jay Wright, and I'm loving practices and the teaching part of it. And I'm spending time over at SMU with Larry Brown. And same thing. I'm like, you know, I love the teaching part of it. The college is all about the teaching part of it. These kids are getting bad advice, bad information. And, and even at the NBA level, if you look at it, the two things like in – 11 or 12 years as a general manager, I've drafted six all-stars, okay? Which, okay, I had some pretty good picks in order to do it. For sure. But still a lot of guys have that. There's some all candies out there. And don't have that happen. Yeah. Okay? So I know talent, and specifically I know talent that can play for me. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at all my free agents, they've all gotten paid over the years. And the reason is because I focus and I put guys in situations that they can do well in. So they're getting good, they're getting numbers for them to get paid. And they're getting good numbers from me. Mm-hmm. Now, I wasn't always the guy that paid them. Sometimes they got overpaid to go place other places, but they still got paid. Yeah. So that was my focus. I said, okay, I now need to find a place that, you know, I like to live and spend the next 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't need the money. It's not about that. But it's about having a job that I like to do and love to do. And I don't, I don't want to jump from place to place. Um, and initially, the way it started getting, getting me interested was that USC was open and these guys up at Bel Air saying, you got to coach USC. Yeah. And I said, I'm in. I, I said, with the talent, you know, in the, in the California area, I said, sure. like, I could kill in this job. Oh, yeah. And then what I didn't realize at that point in time was that most schools hired uh, search firms to, to hire their coaches. Mm-hmm. And then, sure enough, what happens is USC hires a coach via search firm. So I'm like, okay, had no clue about that. So then I made it the rounds, went up to New York, to met with Corn Ferry, went down to Atlanta, met with Daniel Parker, uh, Bob Bodine and Dallas, I mean, just the different guys to say, no, like, I'm really serious about this. Yeah. Okay. And so I actually had a couple of, I, I can't say I had job offers, but guys who had, they were leading the search said, look, we think you've got a great job, chance to get this job if you'll, if you will interview. Yeah. 
And uh, it turned out that they were just in college towns, and they were good, some good programs, but like, guys, I can't live there. Yeah. It's not, it's just not going to work out. Yeah. My, my lifestyle, you know, who I am and how sure, I do yeah. it is, is it can't, doesn't work. There was a job I was interested in that Fran Frischilla wrote about, and Fran went to my high school in Brooklyn, Nazareth yeah, cool. High School, and I called him up and asked him about the job, and he said, Coach, why? I said, because I'm interested in that job. He goes, you got it, you, you're serious. I said, yeah, you want to coach? I, yeah. He goes, oh, wow. Well, that was just a fluff piece. Don't have any real inside information on that. I said, but would you have any interest in Tulane? And he mentioned another school. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, Tulane. Why? He goes, because my friend's running the search. I mean, he would die to have you. Yeah. I said, set it up. Next day, I met with him. And it was actually Bob Bodine in, in Dallas. I, yeah. I met with Bob, and <clears throat> we talked about it. He goes, i got to get you in touch with the athletic director, and you guys are going to love each other. You're going to hit it off. And talked to him on the phone. Then I was flying to New York for the Big East tournament to see uh, Villanova in the Big East. Flew up to New York. We had uh, we had uh, lunch at a uh, restaurant, Italian restaurant by LaGuardia. LaGuardia. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I went into the city, and, and then within a week, I, we had a deal consummated. Wow. And, um, you know, I thought I was going to like it, um, but it's way better than I even thought. How so? Uh, I thought I liked the teaching part and yeah. how it works, but... It's just been great. And, and a little bit of like, I knew Tulane. My brother in law, sister in law went here. So I spent a lot of time in New Orleans as well. Uh, I knew how pretty, I knew how pretty the campus was. Yeah. The practice facility is as good as any NBA yeah. practice facility. You know, you know, town is, a, you know, the big easy. It is, it's, a, it's a easy to get around in. It's just, I mean, great restaurants, great music, great sports. And, um, you know, just a, I've got a great place to come to work every day. And I would think it would be a plus for recruiting, too, that even though Tulane isn't necessarily known as a traditional basketball powerhouse, you appeal to a 17-year-old from Indiana or from Brooklyn or whatever and say, listen, I know you have offers from wherever it is, this, this, and this. You will have great coaching. You'll have world-class facilities. Also, you'll live in New Orleans from age 18 to 21 or something like that. Maybe consider it. I feel like it would be a draw. I think that we have been in it with, like, so many kids. The first year um, we lost some kids that weren't. That I saw earlier were not being recruited. I, I had a very small window when I first came in. My yeah, sure, timing-wise. Timing-wise. But got into it with kids that um, thought we had a great chance to get them. Ultimately, we, we lost a guard to Duke, a center to Oklahoma, power forward to Alabama. And the bottom line came down to, hey, 17-year-old kids in a press conference. Yeah. I, I get it. Uh, we've recruited five kids here since I've been here. You know, f- four, of them are, four of them are foreign. Again, Interesting. Foreign kids, they get NBA. You know, they, they don't. I mean, other and clearly, look, Duke, Kentucky, UCLA, the, the big name schools. The whole world knows about those. Schools. Sure, yeah. But but overall, I mean, guys are going to focus in like, who better could get you ready to go to the NBA than me? Because that's all we do here. That's right. I, I I mean, the plays are NBA plays. The practice is NBA practice. The conditioning, everything I do, I haven't changed one thing except for the point where I start teaching. Okay, obviously, even on bad NBA teams, the player you get is is here. Yeah, you're teaching more fundamentals. Yeah, so we start out that way. The two things that we promise to do, make you better and get you in shape. Okay, and we're going to play at a fast pace, and you're going to improve. And last year, our first year, we played the fastest pace of anybody in our conference, which Hmm. I didn't know we could do that. I just want to play fast. Yeah. And um, Cam Reynolds, uh, uh, our uh, power forward, was the most improved player in the league last year. Uh, this year, we have another player, Melvin Frazier, who's our small forward, who I think he'll be most improved player in the year or better. Hmm. So people are going to see the player development that, that, you know, and how, and the difference between last year and this year is like, you know, I mean, player, you know, player development. We still play at the fastest pace of anybody in our league. Um, I saw a statistic the other day from somebody, um, showed us that as far as a transition team is concerned, proficiency in transition, we rank 13th in the country. Wow, you know, which is a good number. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, we're doing what we want to do, and we, we've got good traction on recruits out to year, you know, 2020, 21, and so we feel like uh, we, we've got the makings of a, a great program. Like I think we could. That's exciting. You're building something. Yes. One last question, which I do at the end of every podcast, is I always ask the guests for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, something. I meet you at a bar or in your office or whatever. And it's a quintessentially Mike thing. It could be something really, oh, serious. And it's a mantra. Or it could be something totally silly. Yeah, no, I mean, I base... Your thing. I base I base <clears throat> my life and whatever, everything I do is, is on no shortcuts. I like that. No shortcuts. I like that very much. I have to know that I've unturned every stone because what that does, it gives you the confidence to do what you got to do. You know, I, I always equated... Uh, I, I, well, 
it's like it's like you're in grade school and it's Sunday night and um, you're getting ready to go to bed and all of a sudden you remember that crap I've got a test tomorrow morning first period and I haven't studied for it versus I knew on Friday and I've been studying all weekend for that test the, the, those two feelings. I won't tell you the team, but my first year of coaching as assistant coach in the NBA, after that year was over, uh, a former teammate of mine came to me, he was a part owner of the team, and said, um, hey, I want to offer you the head coaching job of our team. Mm. And I turned him down. And uh, he said, why, why are you turning me down? I said, if you put a gun to my head, I can do it. I said, but it, I don't need the money. If, it, if, if you like me now, you're going to love me in a year or two years from now. And uh, he said, well, would you come be an assistant coach with our team? I said, are you going to tell the head coach that I'm the head coach in waiting? And he said, no. I said, I can't do that. But three years later, I was coaching, you know, the Lakers. And I got lucky then. I, I had I had three offers at the same time. Yeah. I had the, the Lakers, the Bucks, and the Detroit Pistons. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, obviously I went, with, I, went with, I went with the most talent. Right. That was a good move. Uh, coach, what a pleasure. I love hearing the old stories, and I wish you the best of luck. It sounds like you're building something special here at Tulane. Thanks. Appreciate it.